0: It's sort of a strange video. Uh, the first time I, I, I watched it, it uh, I realized uh, it was sort of strange, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And, and then I realized why I thought it was so strange, because the words of that video are declaring massive realities, aren't they? I mean, world-changing events. They're talking about the creator and sustainer handing us himself, giving us his son, coming for us. They're talking about uh, the the night that all of the promises of God were realized, and all of the promises still waiting were finally uh, full of hope. It it declares a night where uh, all of eternity was completely changed, and the music in the background is... Silent night holy and you're just like, I, I, I want something else. I mean I want something big I want I want Raw you have know, I mean, big music and, and big stuff I and mean, this is a big deal and, and yet and yet it doesn't feel so weird, does it? It actually feels quite appropriate in some ways. Why? Well, it feels appropriate because it's a, a video about Christmas season and declaring truths that are born out of the events that gave us Christmas. And, and one of the beautiful songs that come with that is Silent Night because these events took place on a quiet night in a quiet little town. Yes, lots of hustle and bustle going on in the town, but it was nighttime and everyone was sleeping. And so it was this, this quiet event. Well, really, in, in many ways, uh, humanity was completely oblivious to all that was going on. The reason those words are true for us is because we have the luxury of 2,000 years of history. We know what happened after the birth. We know the life of Jesus. We, we know He died on a cross. We know He rose from the dead. We know His disciples, full of courage, uh, full of the Spirit of God walked into a life unthinkable. We know that the New Testament church ended up being all the things God said it would be. It uh, it ended up carrying the good news of Christ, the redemptive rescue of God uh, through cultural boundaries, language boundaries, geographical boundaries, generational boundaries. We have collided with that gospel and, and it has shaped us. And so, yes, for us, those words are big. But when you sing Silent Night, you know that on that night, humanity was oblivious to the entire thing. And so we've traveled through the Christmas story a bit, and and we've seen the few human beings that were not oblivious. Mary and Joseph were not oblivious. The shepherds were not oblivious. The the guys from the east uh, were not oblivious. They were either paying attention, or God showed up in dramatic style, and they came to know, or they were involved directly in the story. And so a few people showed up in the story and wondrous things occurred in their lives. We watched those who were oblivious and realized they missed so much. And we've been invited in this Christmas season not to be oblivious but not to be captivated by the dailiness of our lives, but to step into the story with Jesus and to, and to set everything else aside and to fix and focus ourselves there. We've been invited through Mary and Joseph to remember and to realize that though God's story may turn our story inside out and upside down, and, and we may even lose our story, that his story is always bigger. But despite all of that, one thing remains true. From a human perspective in the human story, humanity was oblivious to the story. And so the story happened in quietness, in silence, in obscurity. And it's kind of tragic, isn't it? That this event, that nobody saw it, nobody watched it. But that's not actually wholeheartedly true. That's only true if all we do is consider this from a human perspective. If we watch this from humanity, then that remains true. Nobody showed up at the, at the cave to watch Jesus born. What a tragedy. But there was an entirely other world involved in this story that we do not often uh, interact with and, and often consider because for the most part in our human experience, they are not visible to us and they do not interact in a world where we interact with them like we do with one another. So they are not easily considered because they are not often observed. They are, they are um, uh, experienced on occasion in our human story. Uh, but it kind of happens in in little bits and then revealed to us in Scripture is that in fact they are very much part of the story that is unfolding in our world because their obsession is to watch God's story unfold wherever it's unfolding and it is unfolding best in our story because it is where God's mercy and God's grace and God's rescue and God's wonder is taking place and they long to see that unfold. are blown away by what they watch. These are a race created by God for purposes that we have yet to fully discover. We know them as angels. And in this particular story, they are a buzz man. I mean, there's activity going on all over the place in their world. While our world is oblivious and silent, their world is loud and crazy right now. Can you imagine what it might have been like uh, that night before uh, Gabriel came down to have a conversation with Mary? recognizing with absolute clarity because he knew and it was revealed to him as to the other angels, all that was about to happen. They had been longing for this moment. They had been waiting. I don't know how eternity works and how time and space works there, but our time and space happens in sequence. And so I can imagine as Gabriel prepares to enter into our world and interact with a young teenage girl named Mary, can you imagine maybe on his knee right before he came down with a couple of brothers uh, holding hands and just thanking God for the honor that they are about to experience wondering what it's going to be like to watch the promises of God realized by a humanity that is lost and oblivious to him wondering what it's going to be like when Mary first understands and realizes what's about to happen wondering what it might be like when Joseph is going to first have his dream and choose to take Mary despite the consequences wondering what humanity must feel when you are totally lost and and then suddenly being found. And so the honor, the the glory of going down and stepping into our story, into our events, and being part of something that, yes, absolutely will shape all of eternity. And entering into our story, Gabriel comes and goes on multiple occasions in this Christmas story, and along with him, some others uh, there are angels that show up in the story in multiple places. I think of the shepherds. Remember that night? The shepherds there in the fields, and uh, an angel shows up. We're not told who it is. It may have been Gabriel. It may not have been. But an angel shows up, and then right after him, an, an entire group of angels show up, and they come, they, they come sing the glories of God. Good news is coming to you. Good news is coming to you. Can you imagine the entire world of angelic beings? I wonder what they were up to that night. I mean, I can tell you, and if I'm wrong, then you and I can argue about it on the other side of eternity, but I can tell you that they were not oblivious. In fact, I bet that they were standing in absolute focus watching the events of Christmas take place, watching every detail worshiping and paying as close attention as a creature can pay to every moment trying to extract all of it out because what a privilege it was. See, we know from Scripture, it's revealed to us that the race of angels are in fact participants in our story uh, in part as observers of our story. They, they get on some level, we don't know exactly how, the privilege to observe what is unfolding in our story. We see this revealed to us in a couple of different places. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's writing about what it means to be an apostle and the, the life they're living, and, 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 and in this life, the difficulty that comes with that. And, and this is what he says. Listen, listen to how he thinks. Remember, this is not just Paul randomly writing. This is Paul inspired by the Spirit of God, writing revelation for us from God. And this is what he says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 9. Listen to these words. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Watch this now. Listen now. Like men sentenced to death, death because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men. Do you hear that? Here's what Paul's saying is, the story God is writing through us apostles, which we later on find out was the the, the foundation of the New Testament church being built up on, it was the foundation of the movement of the gospel into all these places, and Paul says, I believe God has made us last and least as men sentenced to death because we are part of the presentation of the story of the gospel to all the world, to the angels, and to men. Because all are watching, all are watching the story unfold. In the book of Revelation um, in chapter 5 and multiple other places, we see a story unfold in the book of Revelation where angels and those in eternity are experiencing the story we experience on planet Earth, but in the full vision of what is happening in the spiritual places. And so as we hear the story in the book of Revelation, there's all sorts of creatures and realities and dark forces playing into it. And sometimes when we read it, it's super confusing because we're like, what is that? And who's the two-headed? This and and then you realize what you're watching unfold is the story of our uh, humanity and Jesus is entering into our humanity. But you're watching it as a vision with the full picture of all that was happening in the spiritual realms, and we see there uh, even as the Lamb of God enters in and breaks the scroll, the angels worship God and observe these beautiful realities of what God was up to. The angels were absolutely involved in watching a story unfold that was mind-blowing to them. And I'll tell you, as I think about what they were watching, I, I can't begin to imagine what a, a, what a wrestle it must have been inside of them to, to watch simultaneously something happen that was absolutely horrifying and absolutely wondrous at exactly the same moment. Why do I say that? Let's, let's be reminded of what was occurring on this particular night. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator and Sustainer of all things, the One who holds everything together, the One who is worthy of nothing but absolute, absolute worship, the One that the angels have spent. All of their existence laying their selves down for and going, you are everything to us. Without being uh, tainted and blinded by sin and self and flesh and, and, and horror and pursuit of their own divinity, they are fully and completely focused and aware of God and his wonder. When you walk into God's presence, there is nothing but absolute awe and you worship there and they are watching their creator, their sustainer, their everything. They are watching him enter into an extremely hostile place, an extremely hostile planet, crawling into an extremely hostile body, flesh and blood, into mess, being conceived inside of a woman's womb, having to Grow in that womb and be born into the mess of life, into a world that will reject and will hate him, into a world that will want nothing to do with him after they have ignored his entry point and been completely and totally oblivious to it. When they finally discover that he's come, they'll try to kill him, and they'll get it right. They will murder him and nail him to a cross and laugh while he dies. This is what's happening. This is what's occurring. It is perhaps one of the most brutal things to think about that one could imagine if you were watching it from the perspective of eternity. One of the most horrid things to imagine. That God would empty himself voluntarily setting aside his divine attributes in Christ and become flesh and blood 100% fully man in all of our weakness, counting on the Spirit of God to do the work that He now has chosen not to do because He has set aside His power. If I were in the angel race, I wouldn't know know what to do with that. I mean, can you imagine? Hand on the sword, just say the word. Just say the word. I'll wipe them all out. Every one of them. Jerks. That's what I'd be thinking. You know why I'd be thinking that? Because I lack the reality that they had of having a completely eternal view. See, my view is still like yours, stuck in the dailiness of our life. And so when we look at circumstances take place and we see them in the moment they're taking place, we cannot see beyond them. We cannot see where they're going. We cannot see what they're going to produce. We only see what they are. And so we deal with them as they are. And if I was watching these events, God becoming human for these people, only to know that they would hate him and kill him, I would be ready to go and take people out. I would not be worshiping. I would be mad. But the angels are not mad, are they? I mean, every interaction we see, this is what they're saying: I'm, "I'm coming to bring you good news, good news, great tidings." And then when others show up, they're worshiping God. How is it that the angels are worshiping God, are, are giving Him glory and honor, while they are watching the single most brutal uh, moment in all of eternity to date? I mean, as they're watching us. Uh, demand because of our brokenness that God's love would show up in this horrid and brutal way, knowing that we would do what we were going to do. How could they worship him? Well, they could worship him because they knew exactly what was going on They knew that in the brutality of God becoming flesh and blood, divinity becoming humanity, in the brutality of the hostility of humanity against God, in the brutality of the life of Jesus as he would face it, in the brutality of our hatred toward him while he is alive on planet earth, in the brutality of our death uh, for him and nailing him to a cross, in all of that brutality was being born something so beautiful that the angels could not help themselves but worship God for what He was doing for us. Listen to how it's written, um, this incredible story. Peter writes, Um, In his first letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, and he he writes these words 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Listen to these words now, just listen to them because this, this deals with the angels and their experience of what was taking place on this particular evening on Christmas as Jesus was born onto planet earth. Concerning this salvation, Peter writes. So we know the context here is Peter is talking about the gospel, our salvation story, the story of our soul rescue, the story of our future redemption, the story of our restoration right so he's saying concerning this salvation that we have now discovered in the story of Jesus because now Peter's writing after his death and resurrection so now he knows the whole story the angels already knew the story at the birth Peter couldn't have I couldn't have you couldn't have but now Peter has the full story and he goes oh that's why he came that's why these things happened that's why he had to die And so I'm writing you concerning this gospel, concerning this salvation. Look what he says. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets of old are asking God, when is this going to happen? This this coming of the Messiah, this, this birth of the Messiah, this suffering of the Messiah, and then the consequent glories of the Messiah after his suffering. And here's what they discovered. It says here, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. That's the people he's writing to in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So he's like, look, we have the luxury of hindsight now. We see the full picture, and now when we were in the middle of the picture, we were devastated by those circumstances. The, the apostles, remember? They were hiding while Jesus was being crucified. They couldn't understand why he was dying. They couldn't understand how this brutality was happening. They were discouraged. They were devastated. They were, they were anxious. They were afraid. All of the things. They did not worship, they didn't come to the cross while Jesus was dying and worship God for all that he was doing. That came later once they found out that he came back from the dead and the cross was actually necessary. But the reason the angels could worship is because they had a grander perspective than we do. They weren't in the singular event. They were watching a full story unfold and they already knew how it unfolded. Look what it says here. It says, "It says through, you, uh, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Man, this is, these are events that the angels, for all of the time they were worshiping God, they knew something we didn't. That God's promises are always kept. He is always faithful, and so unlike us hoping in our humanity that maybe God would show up and rescue us, unlike the Jewish people of the time uh, with 400 years of silence wondering if it was ever going to happen when they were under the oppression of Rome, going, has God forgotten us? The angels never had a moment where they're like, has God forgotten them? Has, has, God, has God forgotten to pull off his promises? No, the angels were longing, waiting, anticipating the moment in which we the blinded would discover that God had always been faithful. He had never forgotten. That was never part of the story. God wasn't late, he, he didn't miss an appointment. It was unfolding as it had to, and the angels were longing for the events that would take place where they could watch the unfolding story of our rescue. And in the birth of Christ, despite its brutality, They knew what it was producing, and they worshipped God there. Listen to this. Uh, Paul writes in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. This is what he writes about this particular moment as well. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says this um, in verse 7. Ephesians 3, 7. Of this gospel. So now again, where are we? We're in the gospel story, we're in salvation, we're in the events that began in our perspective from a human perspective at the birth of Jesus, right? But they had already been in play long before that and the angels were just waiting for them to unfold. We experienced them as they were happening and that we didn't even know what they were going to produce yet. We only knew uh, the brutality of it all at the moment and watch this, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me... Though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden from the ages uh, for ages in God who created all things. So he's talking about the gospel and the mysteries of the gospel and the reality that it was going to reconcile uh, all men to one another and to God. So the Jews and Gentiles were going to come together, an impossible idea, all sorts of wondrous mysteries, and he goes, I've been given the privilege to carry this, to preach this to you, and then as you enter into the story, and the church, the early New Testament church uh, grows and is born, look what he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Man, you see, uh, even the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places were experiencing the story of God unfolding in us as it was unfolding, yet they knew. It's kind of like watching a great movie that you've already read the book for, right? I mean, The Hobbit just came out, and who doesn't want to go see The Hobbit, right? But you know the story already. You know how it ends. If you don't, I'm not going to tell you. Don't worry. But you should, because you should have read the book. Uh, And so... Um, And so you're going to go in and you're going to already know the story, but yet you're also going to experience the story, aren't you? So you're going to sit on the edge of your seat and you're going to be waiting for things to happen and you're going to go, I know that that's coming, but I'm not quite sure when and exactly how and I can't wait to see it. And the world of of the angels were watching the story of Christmas unfold. And they were seeing this happen. And they knew that what was occurring on planet earth, though brutal and difficult and terrible, and that even the disciples would experience greater brutality than the birth in the death of Christ, they worshiped because they had a view of what that brutality was going to produce. In the the book of um, Romans in chapter 8, We are told uh, these words. Listen to this. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know. That the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. See, Paul writes that in the story of our humanity, when we chose to pursue our own divinity and and, and pursue our own story rather than God's story for us, not only did sin and death enter into the human part of the story, but we brought sin and death into creation. And so creation itself, the entire story of God in all that he created began to experience the implications of sin and death. And so creation itself is now, instead of experiencing God fully and displaying God fully and singing the beautiful symphony of creation, shouting God to us and us shouting God to creation and us shouting God to one another in the way we live and the things we do, corruption has entered in and in this futility of death, uh, now creation is groaning and longing and waiting for the rescue of God. We didn't groan long and wait for the rescue of God because we were too busy in our dailiness, too busy in our pursuits, but creation wasn't. Creation didn't ask for this story. We gave creation this story. So unlike us who chose it and now chase it, creation was stuck with it and just waited for rescue. And the angels are worshiping in this moment, in this story, because they know. In the worst brutality of divinity becoming humanity, born into hostility, facing a terrible story on planet Earth, and then at the hands of the very people he's rescuing to find himself torn to pieces and left for dead and dying. They were not shaken by that because they had an eternal perspective. They knew the end of the story, and so they knew the purposes of the brutality just as we have been invited by the Christmas story into recognizing that our story is not as big as God's, and if his story turns ours upside down like Mary and Joseph, that we can walk into it with confidence because we know that God's story will write better than ours. You feel like God's story has turned yours inside out and upside down? Good. Then you're in for the best ride of your life. We're invited like the shepherds to let go of the sheep we're juggling and get with Jesus or the wise men to to keep digging, to be more focused and see more, not to just simply resolve ourselves to the fact that this is our life and so we have enough of Jesus. No, 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 go further, dig deeper, push in harder. There are yet mysteries to be discovered that are yours and mine to have. So too in this Christmas story, when we zoom out from our human experience and we watch it from eternity, we are invited into something extraordinary, a brand new perspective, a brand new vision of the life we live. See, the Christmas story comes to us and it doesn't only say your soul rescue, your future redeemed, your purpose restored are all that was born out of the Christmas story of divinity becoming humanity, of Christ being born onto planet earth, but it also then gives us new perspective of the here and now, doesn't it? It says to us, you see, the reason the angels were worshiping in the midst of a brutal and horrible circumstance from their perspective is because they knew that in that brutality, God was birthing the greatest beauty that would ever be known to all of the stories of eternity. They already saw that God was doing something huge, and this is what they knew. They knew that it wasn't despite the brutality of Christ that God would birth the beauty of redemption. It was in it. It was through it. See, it wasn't like Christ was dying and being born and that was happening, and despite that, God still rescued us. He didn't rescue us despite the fact that we killed Jesus. He rescued us in the fact that we killed Jesus. When we killed him, that was our rescue. It's mind-blowing. How does God take brutality, horror, sin, and death And not birth beauty around it, despite it, but actually take it and say, watch this. Put his hand around it, and when he turns it over and he shows you the brutality of your life, it presents as beauty, not brutality. How does he do that? When we have that perspective, suddenly freedoms emerge beyond our wildest imagination we have a few examples of this uh, perspective being born in humanity, and, and probably the best example we have, perhaps at least among the best, is a, a young man named Joseph. Not Joseph and Mary Joseph, because he's awesome too, but a different Joseph, a Joseph that was born many, many, many hundreds, thousands of years before this Joseph was born. It was early on in the scriptures in the book of Genesis. A young man was born into a family of 11 brothers. His name was Joseph. And they were, they, they were having some issues. Relational dynamics were not working out well for them. And there was some jealousy and strife. Not surprised. I have eight kids in my house. Four of them are boys. And there's plenty of relational dynamics, strife, and jealousy, right? The difference is this. When my boys affect their vengeance on one another, they beat each other with plastic swords. That's because I don't give them real ones. Because then they would beat each other with real swords and that wouldn't go well. And so that is their vengeance. And then I inter, uh, intervene in their vengeance. And I go, stop it. You go to your room. You go to yours. Stop beating each other with sticks. I mean, goodness gracious. And then they're like, eh, we're not sorry. And they do the thing. And then sometimes they're like, okay, we're sorry, but really pretend. And then every now and then there's a momentary, like, real sorry, and I'm, I'm blown away, and it's awesome, right? And so that's, that's your dynamic. That's mine. We raise kids. But, but in this time... The boys get jealous of Joseph, and so here's their act of vengeance. A group of people come by the farm one day on their way to Egypt, and they think it would be hilarious to sell him into slavery. Now, they wanted to kill him, so I guess selling them into slavery was a better plan. So their vengeance was either, let's slaughter our brother and then pretend a lion ate him. That would cause one of my kids to be grounded for a very, very long time. (laughs) Or... Let's sell him to a bunch of strangers and have them take him off. So they sold him into slavery. That is not a day where you go, God, the circumstances are panning out super well for me. He's sold into slavery, and I bet as they're traveling in the little cart, Joseph's wondering when the, you know, when the punchline's coming, when the brothers are going to run up and go, we were just kidding. But they never run up, and they never say they were kidding. Joseph goes all the way to Egypt, and he's sold to a man named Potiphar. I don't know what was going through Joseph's mind, but I can imagine what, was going, what would have been going through mine. And Joseph enters Potiphar's house, and here's what Joseph does, because he loves God, and I suppose he kind of looked around and went, well, <laughs> I mean, it's not like the brothers are coming to get me. He begins to pour his heart and soul into that house, and he earns his way through his integrity and love for God to a place in Potiphar's house where he is honored greatly. I mean, as a slave, so he's still a slave. Potiphar trusts him with everything. And so you can, you can kind of say, you know, in, in our Western cultural context where we are so obsessed with comfort and convenience that any time anything uncomfortable or brutal happens, we wonder where God is and why He's not around, or we wonder why it's happening, or we start trying to avoid it at all costs because we're anxious and fearful and stressed out and mad and angry, and then some decent things happen and we go, oh, good, good, at least some good came out of this in that time. And so, Joseph is with Potiphar, and things are going pretty well, and you're like, well, if he's going to be in slavery, this is a good scenario. Potiphar's wife gets a crush on him and wants to do more, and so she comes for him, and he does what any good man would do. Uh, He denies her, flees from her, rejects her, and runs from her. Does the right thing, and in doing the right thing, gets blamed for the wrong one. It's not even like, eh, he does the right thing, gets blamed for the wrong one, and Potiphar who trusted him puts him in prison. He spends a long time in prison, not days, not weeks, no punchline, in prison. And in prison, he diligently serves God and he earns the right to be trusted in prison, but they're not going to set him free. You see, we keep waiting like, oh, and then he was set free. No, he wasn't set free. They just trusted him in prison. So he's a slave, trusted, and then he's a prisoner, trusted. And there's these two guys in prison, and they're in prison, and they have dreams. And so Joseph tells them about their dreams. And one guy is going to have a very, very bad end to his dream, and the other guy's going to have a very good end. And so Joseph says to the guy who's going to have a good end, when you have this good end, if it pans out the way I've uh, uh, seen the vision for it, would you remember me? Well, it turns out exactly the way Joseph said, you know the story, and Joseph ends up in the king's courts, and uh, not Joseph, uh, uh, the, 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 the guy that Joseph had interpreted a dream for. Does he remember Joseph? No. No, he doesn't. Not, not for days, not for months, not for years, not for years. Joseph sits in prison for years while the guy is sipping wine and eating bread at the king's table. And an event takes place years later. By that time, Joseph has long abandoned any hope for a punchline to come in and go, just kidding, I remember you. And a dream happens with Pharaoh, and the guy's like, dude, I remember this guy in prison. He's probably dead by now, but we can go check. And they go, find Joseph, and he's not dead, and he interprets the dream for Pharaoh. And the dream he interprets for Pharaoh turns out to be a very big deal, the kind of big deal that sets up for seven years prosperity in a nation to save Thousands, perhaps millions, of people from starvation. Joseph becomes second in command of all of Egypt, and one day his brothers show up because they were part of those who were starving. When the brothers come in, they don't even know it's Joseph. Bowing down to him, dude, that would have been my moment. Just saying, saying, let's not call it vengeance. Let's call it justice, okay? Because that would have been justice. What me just go, oh, I'm so sad to see you guys are starving. Why don't you all head back to your little farm? See if you can pull it out of a lion's mouth. But here's what Joseph does. Listen to this. Listen to these words. And see in these words a perspective that is extraordinary. And yet a perspective we are invited into this Christmas season. A perspective that is absolutely real. Genesis chapter 50. The very last chapter. uh, Verse 20. Here's what it says. He's speaking to his brothers. As for you... You meant evil against me. Oh, yes, they did. They sold him into slavery and hoped he would die. But God meant it for good. He didn't say God used it for good. God meant it for good. God took the brutality of that moment and not despite it, but through it and in it, God meant it for good. To bring about that, many people should be kept alive as they are today. Because of the brutality of Joseph's life, God kept many alive as He had planned to. Because of the brutality of Jesus' life, God saved the human story. Brooke and I had the privilege a couple months ago to go up to Colorado And uh, to a soul care retreat where, uh, soul care intensive where you spend three hours a day for a week with a couple and they extract out of your soul the junk that needs to come out and pour into your soul the stuff that needs to go in. And you you get to examine where in your soul things have been forgotten and things have been missed and uh, both in our marriage as well as just in our life and our relationship with God. And it was intense. And then uh, for the hours in the afternoon, you have this 10-acre space where you walk around in the Colorado mountains with wildflowers and beautiful, extraordinary visions of creation. I like creation here in Florida because it comes with heat, and so that's my favorite. So I know it's lizards and spiders and some green palm trees. It's not quite the same as the Colorado mountains, but I'll take it because Colorado, beautiful but cold. But for a week, it's awesome because it's a little different. You're walking around staring at all this, and Brooke's walking down the path one day among the wildflowers, and the Spirit of God just prompts her to get off the path. So she gets off the path, and she's walking among the wildflowers, and she realizes as she's walking that um, there were cows and horses that had come before her into the wildflowers. They weren't there then, but they had left evidence behind of their presence. And just like our Western culture cautions us, anytime you see stuff on the ground that doesn't look comfortable and convenient, avoid it at all cost. And in some ways, there is an appropriateness to that. You don't want to step in it. You don't want to uh, stumble upon it. You certainly don't want to sit in it. And so it seems to invade the space of the beauty, doesn't it? It seems to be misplaced. You're kind of bummed that it's there. You're like, eh, there's all these wildflowers, and now the stupid cow leaves this behind. (laughs) And then God spoke to Brooke and said to Brooke, look closer, more carefully. You see, As a result of the cow leaving this behind and the horse leaving this behind, all these wildflowers you see, they are only here because of that. In fact, where this stuff lands, just a little while later, the tallest, brightest, most beautiful wildflowers grow because the richness of the fertility, uh, the fertilizing power in this is, is incredible. And this is what God spoke to Brooke. When you go home, currently you live in a scenario that's pretty brutal, For Brooke, it's pretty brutal, just because of her personality. She is an introvert internally, though she presents as extrovert. She's an introvert internally. That means what she needs more than anything else is space, quiet, order. She's also a perfectionist, so that adds to that more space, more quiet, and more order. And we threw her into a story. God threw her into a story that said, how about we create a world where you will never have order? You will never have space. And it will never be quiet in your home. And so that's brutal. And God said to Brooke, you keep looking for the beauty despite the brutality. But the beauty of your home rests right in the middle of the brutality. It is the brutality that will produce more beauty than you will ever imagine. We came back from Colorado. We were ready. It didn't work out so well yet but we're hopeful because <laughs> brutality still is long-lived. But you see, Brooke has a perspective now that she is looking for the beauty in the brutality. This is what you and I are invited into through the Christmas story. You and I face the brutality of life every day, don't you? I don't know what it is for you. What is it? Is it, is it environmental brutality? In other words, the circumstances around you? H- have things gone awry around you? Uh, did you lose a job right before Christmas and? You're not sure how you're going to pay the bills or when it's going to happen. You know you've got enough in the bank account to get you through maybe January and then it's over. You've put 5,000 resumes out and nobody's calling back. That's brutal. That is brutal. That is stressful. That is, you're full of anxiety. You're wondering where God is in this. That is not a good thing, right? Is it, is it a diagnosis? Is that what it is? You go in for a checkup because you got a bit of a pain here or a bit of a pain here or a bit of a this there. And you come out and the doctor walks in the office and you see his face or her face and you're like, this isn't good. And then they sit down, they start with these words, I'm, I'm sorry, but. And suddenly you find out everything's inside out and upside down. This is not what you wanted. Is, is, that, is that it? That's brutal. That's brutal. Is it, is it other circumstances? Is it the, just the noise, the schedule, the, the hustle and bustle, the 90-hour weeks? Is it, is it the demands of life? Is that what it is? It's brutal. I know. It it's it's soul eroding. Is it relational? Is that what it is? You're struggling with a relational dynamic that's complex and difficult and brutal? Is it is it a is it a friendship relationship? Is it a relationship with a coworker that's just bad right now? And so every day you go to work it's just brutal? Is it is it a child parent relationship where you're struggling with a parent that you've that you've been separated from in some way that you're not speaking to or is it is it the other way around that it's one of your children that you just you just can't seem to get it i mean you're trying everything but it's bad right now is it a spousal relationship is there tension breakdown erosion that's brutal it's brutal i know it is it's brutal it is soul eroding is it is it resource-based just don't have enough you you keep trying to figure out how to pay the bills make ends meet you didn't mean to get into that debt you lost your job three years ago or you meant to get into that debt and you were just foolish but now you're wiser and you want out but now it's there (laughs) and so you're paying and you're writing those checks and you don't know how it's brutal life is full of brutality Produces anxiety, produces stress, produces fear, produces discouragement. It produces the sense of, Where are you, God? And that's because when we stare into our brutality, us human beings, all we've got is the here and now. It's all we've got. And the here and now does not feel great, it does not feel good. And then the Christmas story comes to us through the perspective of the angels and says this It was brutal, it was horrid, it was terrible. But we worshipped God there. Why? Because God's story always says the same thing. Every time there is brutality that this planet produces, I will put my hands over it. And when I am done with it, and I turn it around like magic, like wonder, like, like unthinkable supernatural power, I will present it, and it will present as beauty. He says it this way in Romans. That same passage, Romans 8, where he talked about creation longing, right after that, this is what he says, for I will work all things, all things for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. If you belong to God, then this is what he promises you. Does it feel brutal now? Does it feel rough now? Are you discouraged, overwhelmed? Just wait because as you stare into the Christmas story through the eyes of the angels, you are invited into a new perspective, a new vision, where you can lay down your anxiety, lay down your fear, and say this to that circumstance. You think you have the power to crush my soul. Well, I have news for you. I belong to a God who came in brutality to our planet, lived in brutality on our planet, and died at the hands of our brutality. And in that brutality, he rescued my soul, restored my purpose, and redeemed my future. You think this little circumstance is going to be too much for him to change into beauty. Well, you got another thing coming. And then you walk away and you go rest in the hope that Christmas produces for you. That your brutal moments, your hurts and pains, your mess that either you experience or you have affected will, will be made beautiful in time. It is often in the pile that the cow left behind that the most beautiful wildflowers grow. Let us wait as the angels did, longing to see the end of the story patiently in our brutality this Christmas and let us set it aside this week as we enter into Jesus so that we might sit there not anxious and fearful and angry and mad but free and at peace because like Joseph we can say what this circumstance intends for evil and my destruction God has meant for beauty just wait and see that is Christmas. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your incredible and wondrous love for us, that You would come into our story, walking into all of the brutality we brought to it for You, all of our mess, all of our anger, all of our our violence toward You. And yet, it was in that struggle, in that brutality, that You produced the gospel story, the most beautiful reality that we have ever known. May we stare into our circumstances this Christmas and find new perspective, new vision, new hope there out of this Christmas story through the perspective of those who watched from eternity and knew more than we do. And may we find hope and peace in our circumstances because we know that your promise was made fully fulfilled at Christmas and will be made fully fulfilled in us even now. Show us the way to this vision and perspective and give us peace there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.